0: Oh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. How you guys doing today? Good. And I'll just say, Adam West should feel honored to share my birthday. Okay, he really should. Um, on, on another note, there is another birthday that um, I actually found out about today that is really cool. Um, today marks Celebration Church's twenty-eighth birthday, and so yeah, that's really, really cool. Um, Pastor Chris told me that 28 years ago today they met at Clover Creek Elementary School and there were, I think he said, 25 adults, 17 kids, and the church is still going today. So it's very, very cool that uh, today we also get to celebrate the the birthday of of this place. So I'm honored to be here. I'm honored and just privileged to be the the pastor here. And um, I love what we get to and I love what God's doing in this place. So would you pray with me as we just welcome God in and get going today? God, I thank you so much for this place. Um, I thank you that we get to get together, we get to celebrate today. And God, I pray that as we unpack some more about grace and, and humility, God, I pray that we're all challenged, we, we all uh, take the words to heart. And God, I pray that you speak to everybody here. We have a fun time uh, celebrating uh, the church's birthday, Batman's birthday, God, but, but ultimately celebrating what you are doing in our hearts in this place. God, we thank you, we love you. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, now, uh, today, if you have your Bibles, um, you can get them ready, but just so you know, we're going to be flipping around a lot of scripture today. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 23. We're going to be in Luke 14. We're going to be flipping all over the place. So, so get your, uh, either your, your Bible apps ready to be flipping through or get your, your fingers ready to be going back and forth because we've got a lot to unpack today. But, um, but in a really fun thing because I, I love talking about these things. We're talking about grace, but today with an emphasis on pride and humility. I think that uh, we see a lot in Scripture about pride. We see a lot in Scripture about humility and how humility can really bring about a greater grace in your life. Now, some of us uh, maybe have grown up uh, in church and you go to, to children's ministry or Sunday school, and you have fun memories of things that you learn in school. I know that you know, being a children's pastor for so long, I loved theming the classroom and theming lessons and doing lots of fun things where you take either a character for a whole month and just talk about their life and really unpack it, or you take a certain word and you unpack that word for a few weeks and have a lot of fun different things to do with the kids. Now, there's a story of a, a, children, or a child in children's ministry in a church. They were learning about grace. And there was a boy who attended this Christian school. And in second grade, they're doing a study on a character with spirit-filled Christians. And they spent a hard month on humility. One of the assignments was to write a report and do an action that demonstrated biblical humility. At the end of the month, they had a chapel service where they named the winner of the Humility Award. This boy won the award. They call him up. But as he reached up to take the award from the principal, the principal took it back and said, now you lost the award for trying to take it. It's not a true story, okay? It's not a true story. <laughs> but it's a little funny, right? You, you think, you know, it's some, someone trying to honor humility, and then there's this big prideful moment, and he loses the award for, for being a little happy with this, 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 uh, this, receiving this, because it goes against what we would consider maybe humility. Now, like I said, totally messed up, but it illustrates the conflicting ideas that maybe we can have when it comes to learning about pride or learning about being humble. Now, the apostles Peter and John, they both quote the Old Testament multiple times. And in their letters, one instance, they talk about in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5, they say, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think it's notable that that two of God's chosen leaders refer to some Old Testament scripture and they refer to early passages all about grace and humility. I think they knew how important it was that the character of God is one that shows grace, but it's also one that shows true humility, and that's important for us to apply in our lives today as we grow in learning about the grace of God. So there are questions to consider about grace and humility and how it applies for us today and how interlaced these two things are. One question we can think about is, where do we get our ideas about humility? What, what about your life? Who, who taught you what it means to be humble? Who showed you true humility? And I'm sure when I ask this, you probably have people in your heads that you're thinking of right now. You think, oh, this was probably the most humble leader I know. Or maybe you're thinking of someone like, well, that was the most pride-filled person I know. You went immediately opposite, someone who is not a good example of humility. But then as you dive deeper in how to apply it, you can have questions like, if God gives grace to the humble, how do I get to pursue it and want it more and more and be filled with all of this and be proud that I'm humble? Or how how do do I get to be humble and, and really go for it but still have that attitude of humility knowing that I'm growing and I'm really, really happy with how I'm growing in humility. See, both Peter and James went to the Old Testament and said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. They latched on to Proverbs 3.34 where this is found because they knew it was important. First, this passage, it tells us right there, God gives grace. And we can say that's fair enough, right? God gives grace. This is what God is supposed to do. This is the attribute of God. It's the character of God. He is supposed to give us grace. Grace. But then it also breaks it down a little bit more and says he gives grace to a certain kind of people. He gives grace to humble people. And as we keep reading scripture, it also tells us God can withhold grace from a certain group of people. He'll give it to the humble, but he will withhold it from the proud. And keep in mind, my mind was blown when, this came to, when I realized this fact with it. When, he, when they wrote this passage, they weren't writing to people who didn't know who Jesus was. They were writing to the believers. They were writing to the believers. God gives grace to the humble. God withholds grace from the proud. This was written to people who knew Jesus. This was written to the people who knew who Jesus was, who were attending the churches planted by the apostles. They knew what was going on. They knew what they were supposed to do, and they still had to be reminded, guys, if you want grace, it's going to take humility, and God is not going to give it to you if you're proud. I think it's easy to to look out at other people and think, that's a proud person, that's a proud person, oh, that's a humble person. It kind of blows my mind when when, when we realize, oh, this is written to me. Someone who who is here in church, someone who is doing their their best to follow God, or maybe I'm going through a season where I'm not really doing my best. This passage is for me. I need to be filled with humility. I need to understand how God's grace works. We start to see parts of scripture that are pointed directly at us. I think it opens up reading the, the Bible into a whole new light knowing that it's not just written for people to hear Jesus first, but it really is written to you. It really is to help you grow, to help you get deeper, to help you understand what Jesus is saying to you. Dealing with people who know and heard Jesus makes me understand it so much differently. I think that when uh, when we hear Jesus, we see the greatest humble leader in existence. We see, and even the people in scripture, they saw him give his life for people. They still dealt with pride. We still deal with pride. And this dealing with pride can lead us to receiving less of this grace that it says he will pour out to the humble. People had a hard time then, and let's face it, today we still have a hard time with pride, right? I don't know of anybody who's ever said, um, I have no pride, I am only humble. I think saying that kind of contradicts itself, right? (laughs) Right? Right, we we all deal with pride. Think of the last time you're in an argument, and uh, and maybe you have a perfect marriage and you never argue ever. But think of the last time you're in an argument, and not just any argument, but one where you knew you were right. Not not I have to prove my point, but you knew for a fact you were right, but the person you were arguing with refused to believe that you were right. What becomes your goal in that argument? To win. Right, you got to win this argument. You have to prove them wrong. You have to let them know that you are right. It becomes a matter of pride. It really does. You are right, they are wrong, and you are going to prove it, and you know that you are not wrong. But then, what happens in those arguments where you know you, you finally realize you're wrong? Sometimes, just sometimes, even though they prove you're wrong, what do you do? No, no, I don't believe you, and you just walk away. <laughs> you, you refuse to admit it, right? You refuse to own up to the fact that you were wrong. You simply say, no, no, you're right. You walk away, even with your head held high, because you don't want to lose that pride. You don't want to lose that element that you knew for a minute you had it or you thought you had it. I've been there. Sometimes I am still there. I don't want to admit it when I'm wrong. But three times scripture reminds us God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Three times, Proverbs 3.34, James 4.6, and 1 Peter 5.5. I think this strongly means there is a big link between humility and grace. When God sees his children willing to take the low place in his family, He pours out, I think, a special portion of grace to strengthen them in service to one another. Humility, I think, really draws us closer to the blessing of God. The same God who stripped down to the waist, bore on the loincloth of a servant, and washed his disciples' feet. We rejoice when we learn to prefer that he rejoices when he he sees us preferring others instead of ourselves. On four separate occasions, we're gonna, this is where we're really going to start flipping through the Bible, so get it ready. On four separate occasions, we'll see this phrase, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And these, these passages, they're not repetitions of the same story. It's not sometimes when you go through the Gospels and you see like Mark will have the same story as Luke. It's not the same story repeated. These are four separate instances where we see this example of the one ex, uh, being humbled being exalted. And the first one is Matthew 18, one through four. And as we read these passages, we're going to have some challenges to unpack together. So Matthew 18, 1 through 4. And I think our first challenge is this. When it comes to pride, humility, and grace, to lay aside dreams of greatness and embrace dreams of dependency on him. We need to learn to lay aside dreams of greatness and embrace dreams of dependency on him. So starting in verse 1, it says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then he called a child to him and had him standing among them. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Talk about a major ego blow for the disciples, right? Can you imagine being the disciple if it was one of them and Jesus said, oh, it's you. Man, like ego overload. But Jesus brings a kid. He says, you've got to be like this child. This is the highway to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that amongst men, there were none greater than John the Baptist, yet the person who was least in the kingdom of heaven was greater than John. I think living in the kingdom of heaven, when we understand what this means, it means living with God's intervention every single day. Letting God be that one who guides your day, the one who intercedes in your day, who directs and guides your day. Putting him first, because when we put him first, all we can do is take a back seat. We have to make ourselves lower. We, we can't make the kingdom of heaven happen. That's God's work. He makes the kingdom happen, but we get to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. We get to proclaim it every day, everywhere we go, that Jesus is here, Jesus is coming. There's a God who loves you. We are a part of his work. And then we depend on him to invade our ordinary lives with his extraordinary presence and his extraordinary power because of our obedience in line with his good works. It's a dependency on him putting his will over ours, putting ourselves lower, raising him, and then letting him invade our lives with his grace, his love, and his mercy. The second challenge is in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 23, 1 through 12. And in this, we'll learn that we need to lay aside the thrill of recognition and find the joy of serving. Lay aside the thrill of recognition and find the joy of serving. I mean, you can answer this one. Who likes to be recognized for what they do? Nobody? Wow, I mean, I think most people, when you do something, even if it's not like a big public powwow, a thank you goes a long way, right? A thank you goes miles. It's amazing how two words can totally change someone's life. Seriously. People can do jobs forever, and then sometimes people will quit things and say, why'd you quit? It's like, I felt like nobody noticed and nobody cared. But sometimes someone coming up and saying thank you can be all the fuel someone needs to do something more because we like recognition. The problem, though, is sometimes you really start wanting that thrill. Like, that's what you start doing it for. I do it to be recognized. I'm going to do this because I want people to acknowledge who I am and what I'm doing. So Matthew 23, 1 through 12 says this. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be observed by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats at the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. But as for you, do not be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. And do not be called masters either because you have one master, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant and whoever exalts him will be, exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, if we're honest, we will recognize ourselves in the people Jesus describes, right? Those who strive for recognition by the way they dress, by the way they park, uh, by the titles that we hold because it, it's thrilling to be noticed. It's thrilling to be, to be elevated in front of other people. In children, my children's ministry years, I, was, uh, I, I got to do a lot in public um, elementary schools. It was a whole lot of fun doing after-school clubs and uh, going to kids' graduations and doing sports camps. I, I love to be in the community with the kids. And what happens is when you do that for a number of years, those kids grow up. And the same kids that were coming to your sports camps or your games nights are now in middle school. And then they're in high school. Then they're graduating. Then they're asking you to do their weddings. And it makes you feel old at times. But uh, it's funny saying that, that I feel old and I'm not. But, (laughs) But all that to say... Uh, I got to go to graduations last year, and it's fun going on graduations, and when you walk across, when I walk across campus, there were a lot of kids and parents that would go, Dustin, hey, Dustin, hey, look, it's Dustin over there, and, and uh, I would do, my event was called the Sea Games, and so there would even be people that they didn't know my name, it's the Sea Games guy, look, there he is, and so I'm waving and having fun, and um, my wife and some friends are like, oh my gosh, Dustin, it's like we're going to graduation, and you're the celebrity at the graduation, and I would tell them, I was like, you know what, guys, Just relax, I'm kind of a big deal. Okay? I will sign diplomas and programs after the ceremony. Small fee, but it'll happen. And um, obviously, it was all fun and games, but it's easy to get caught up in the fanfare. It's easy to get caught up in moments where everybody knows who you are and what you do. And you can easily go from a place of, of just receiving the, the, the celebration. I'm not saying if someone celebrates you, that's wrong. As a matter of fact, I think it's great when people recognize you. But you can, it can very easily go from a place where you're receiving it and saying thank you to, yes, let it come. They know who I am. I'm, you're going to walk into a room and suddenly you're walking in there because you're going to be recognized. And that's your purpose for doing what you do. And I think that's the shift that we see here in Scripture that we don't want to have. It's easy to get caught up. The opposite is true in Scripture. You see, what we see in Scripture here is it says servants come and go in the midst of all the clamor. They they quietly attend to the business, the master's business. They say they're going to come and they're going to do it, not looking for the fanfare, but they're serving because they know their service to be done. They're serving because they find joy in knowing they are serving God. This is what has to happen, and that's where their joy comes from, knowing that God recognizes what's going on. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reveals that the Father is the one who sees what you're doing. He sees in secret all the things that maybe people don't recognize. Maybe you're in a place where you do stuff, and people don't recognize what you're doing. I encourage you in this, know that God sees what you're doing, and he is celebrating your heart to do it. He's celebrating your servant's heart, and that's the heart that he wants. He wants the heart that says, even if nobody does, know that I do, and I love it. And I love you. He sees your heart for joy. He sees your heart for helping others. He pours out his blessing. And that's when we get to experience him pouring out his grace upon us. Don't get caught up in the fanfare. It's, it's okay to get and it, It's okay to acknowledge it. But I love that, that when people say, you know, like, oh, my gosh, you do all this stuff. Why do you do it? We always get to point them to Jesus. And that's a, such a fun thing to see when people realize we don't do it for ourselves and we do it for him. Man, it changes their world. And I know it keeps us in a place of humility. Third is in Luke 14, Luke 14, verses 7 to 14. Here we learn that we need to lay aside the thirst for honor from others and seek to honor others instead. Lay aside the thirst for honor from others and seek to honor others instead. Starting in verse 7 in Luke 14, it says this, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the other one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back, and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." I love that Jesus says, if you want to honor someone, honor someone who can't repay you because that puts your heart in check. You know, you're doing it to honor someone knowing there may not be anything that comes back on you. He says to elevate others. Let other people take the better seats or positions and then elevate those people with true humility. See, there's a time of reckoning and a place to receive repayment, but he's saying it's not here, it's not now, and it's probably not with our planning and timing. That's what God gets to work out. He gets to work out when we receive these rewards for our service and humility. And that makes sure we always keep our focus on him instead. It's when he elevates. The question then is, can we delay gratification or do we want it right now? We do live in a right now society, right? I mean, if if someone doesn't ship it in two days like Amazon does, we write them off. We want things now. Can we delay our repayment for God's timing or do we have to do something to know someone's going to give this back to me right away? The next passage is Luke 18, starting in verse nine. In Luke 18, we learn to lay aside self-assessment and depend on God's mercy. Lay aside self-assessment and depend on God's mercy. Luke 18, nine to 14 says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to the house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, Jesus draws this amazing picture of these two people that come to the temple, right? You have the Pharisee that comes, and he he immediately starts tallying up his score to God. He starts saying, God, look, look at everything I've done. I win. I am winning in life, right, God? I mean, look what I do. I am check this box, check that box. I am so amazing. I give my money. I, I am he's the ultimate scorekeeper, and he has to remind God he is the winner. As if we need to remind God of the things that we're doing, right? The other man starts with God's mercy instead of self-assessment. He says, you know what? The scorekeeping belongs to God. God, he says, God, I'm not even worthy of you to look at me. God, I'm not even, I can't even bring myself to look up at you right now because I know where I mess up. I know where I stand. And he begs for God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness instead. We have to be careful if we, uh, if we want to keep score because we're going to have to stand next to that measuring stick someday, right? I mean, if we want to keep score of all the good things we do, God could very easily go, well, let's look at all the things you didn't do (laughs) and look at that list instead. But we don't serve a God who's going to do that. We get to come to God with humility and he gets to say, hey, you can lift your eyes up. You can look at me. I know where you stand. You know where you stand. And I get to elevate you now. You humbled yourself. Let me lift you up. If you have to brag to God, chances are there's a heart issue going on. Chances are there's a heart issue, and it's time to do a heart evaluation. It's time to do a humility check. God already knows your heart, but sometimes we have to look inside and really give ourselves an honest evaluation of it. In the Old Testament, we see some really, really awesome stories of God's grace, and one of them really, really stands out to me with, uh, with a king in the Old Testament. So sometimes when we think of horrible people— if I say, what's the worst person in history you can think of? You may have a, a historical figure that you go to, maybe a biblical character you go to, but there have been just some awful people in history, right? People that when you think of what they've done, you can immediately think, you know, it's not, not necessarily a godly thought. You can immediately think, you know what? I'm glad that person's dead. I'm glad they're gone. I'm glad, you know, the, the army took them out. Whoever it is, whoever you think of, they, you can have that thought. They were so bad, you are glad they are gone. What if I were to tell you about a guy in Scripture? Imagine a man practices witchcraft Practices seances, fortune-telling, necromancy. Picture him engaged in human sacrifice by burning people on stakes, burning people on altars, including his own children. Then he gets nationwide authority and influence, but he practices these things, the things I just said, and he encourages others to do the same. If there's any room left in your imagination, imagine this man finding his way back to God. It's hard to think of that, right? It's hard to think of someone who, again, witchcraft, seances, burning his own kids, finding his way to God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we read about King Manasseh. He is a man who does all these things. He is just, he is a bad man. Now, he has a humbling experience when he is actually taken captive and prisoner and beaten and tortured. But what happens is he was a man who provoked God to anger. This was a consequence of his actions. But in this moment where he is now living the consequences of provoking God's anger, he caught God's attention because it wasn't just a, all right, I learned my lesson, I'm sorry. He had a genuine humbling of his heart, so genuine that it turned God's eyes and favor back on him. That's an amazing story of grace. When you see someone who did these horrible things suddenly find favor with God again, it's phenomenal. 2 Chronicles 33, you can read all about King Manasseh. And this change happens in just one short chapter. One short chapter, we see a heart change. See, Manasseh didn't simply experience God's mercy. He provoked it. He provoked God's mercy. The Father loves humility. We see in this passage that humility turns God's head. In an amazing way towards you. Jesus tried again and again to share this with people about this pathway to God's heart. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, Jesus demonstrated humility and lived in the low place of Israel's society. He portrayed children as exemplars and humans' uh, humble trust in, the, in God's care. You see, what we learn from Jesus and even from Manasseh here, that humility is an expression of truth and integrity. People can intuitively hunger for humility in their spiritual life and even in their uh, spiritual and political leaders. And we learn this about humility the more I unpack the story of Manasseh and other people in scripture. We learn that humility, it really is a sail that captures the grace and mercy of God. If you want something that's going to propel you forward, and and what God wants you to do, man, think of of your boat and humility as that sail catching the wind and just sending you down the ocean, sending you on the seas. It is an amazing thing that God will just blow into and propel you forward in your life. But I love that it's him blowing that wind. It's him pushing that sail out. Not us. It's him. God's ear is tuned to hear the weakest words of a humbled heart. In Manessa's story, we find hope for everyone who has ever wondered if they could possibly grab God's mercy. Just anyone who says, man, I have done so many horrible things. I have been so bad. I have fallen so far. I can't even fathom God looking at me. I love that we get to learn from Manessa. He does hear you. He does see you. And he can restore and propel you forward. There's things we learn from Manessa. In verse 10, we learn that even in the midst of gross iniquity, God is still speaking. Even in the midst of your gross iniquity, God is still speaking. Even after a long list of rebellious acts against God, the text reveals that God was still reaching out to King Manasseh. I love that. Manasseh, you would think he is the furthest away anybody could be at this time, and God is still reaching out for him. If you've been told that God hides from you and your sin, you've been misled. You've seriously been misled. I think it's because of our sin that God continues to reach out to us. Because we mess up, he is still there saying, I still want you. He never looks at you and says, you're a lost cause. There's no hope. He can look at you and see your brokenness and see your sin and see your trials and say, this is, I still want you. I'm still reaching out for you. He will not stop his pursuit of you. He loves you and he refuses to give up. And it's not just that his love reaches down. It's that the humble heart reaches up. And that's what we see with Manessa. God was there reaching. And when he humbled his heart, they were able to connect. And it's a beautiful story. In verse 11, we see that God knows how to humble us. God knows how to humble us. There's a massive difference between being humbled by God and being humble before God. You see, Manasseh, it took both ways for him. He, it took him in the height of his power and the height of his just horrible things. God humbled him. God had him taken. God had him oppressed and beaten. But in that moment, Manasseh had to learn, it's not just being humbled by God that's going to fix things. I have to humble myself before him too. And once those two things came together, began Manessa's redemption story. I think God can arrange circumstances that, uh, that can show us some humility. God can bring us circumstances where we are at the height of our pride and something happens. It's like, oh man, eat the humble pie and eat the whole thing now. <laughs> because God's in control and he's, some things are happening now that I know you didn't plan. But when we recognize that we now get our chance to get on our knees before God, we get a chance to look down so he can make us look up. That's when things change in our lives. Knowing that the whole time we're in control of our thoughts, we're in control of what we're doing, that's why it takes our action to humble ourselves. In verse 13, we learned that our hearts can move God's heart. Our hearts can move God's heart. This is an astounding revelation for me, knowing that there's something I can do, there's an action and a reaction that plays both ways with me and God. You see, it says God is not impressed by human power. He's not impressed by human wealth. He's not impressed by your own human wisdom, but he is impressed by what you do with your heart. When a man or woman, when we choose contrition, the Father tells heaven to be quiet. He says, guys, listen, I'm gonna talk to somebody right now. Our prayers, I think, have so much power when we take our proper place before God. When we know our place in his presence, we get to see him respond. We get to see his heart move because he sees our heart moving to him. In verse 25, we see that our humble example can influence generations to come. We see that our humble example can influence generations to come. Manasseh had a grandson, and if you're familiar with some of the kings in Scripture, the name Josiah may stand out to you. Josiah was a child. Eventually, I think he was eight years old when he became the king. Eight years old. But I love that Josiah... He sparked a nationwide revival, and I like to imagine that Josiah, because Josiah's dad was not necessarily the best, but I imagine that he got to look at his grandpa and see some of the things that his grandpa did, and then how his grandpa changed the stories of Manasseh, and I I hope that that was an influence for Josiah to then do the things he did, where he took a nation who was far from God and brought it back to God. He got to go to the temples and throw things out, and he found scriptures that talked about how to praise God, how to honor the temple, and he got a whole nation to turn their eyes back to God. Knowing what we do now, our humble hearts, the way people see our service, the way people see us interact with each other and our, and our attitudes behind it, that has the ability to influence our kids. It has the ability to influence our grandkids when they hear stories of, hey, this is, how grandma, this is how grandma and grandpa served. This is why they did what they did. We get to leave a legacy with our heart that follows God. And that's a really, really cool thing. There are so many more stories in the Old Testament that, that talk about the postures of heart. But I love that Jesus embodied the life of humility before the Father. And, and it worked out really well for him, right? I mean, it left Jesus' legacy as one that is unmatched. 2,000 years strong and going. He demonstrated a path that leads to glory. A glory that is unimagined by us. That is backed by scripture. Even more than Manasseh, Jesus modeled the way of humility. Consider what Paul said in Philippians 2, 6-11. through 11. Paul says this, and I know we've read this before, but it's such a powerful passage on humility and grace. It says this, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He, found, he being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The name at, the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What I love that what is whispered in the Old Testament is shouted in the New Testament. We see, we see stories of grace and, and humility and then it comes, it comes full focus into the, the New Testament and it is proclaimed, it is shouted out like this is what it's all about. Humility spares Manasseh's life and it was the way of life for Jesus. It is no less the way of life for you and me today. Now, I think a lot of people are actually surprised to learn that there are things we can do uh, to, to turn God's heart and bring the grace of God into our lives when we humble ourselves. But I think we need to understand that just like humility can turn God's heart and bring grace into our lives, the opposite is also true. With humility, if you're not doing that, you're doing the other, which is pride. And when we show a prideful heart, we also can, like I said, we have God either pouring grace on us or turning grace from us based off of pride or humility. It's easy to step across that line from grace into truth and enter into arrogance. It is so easy to enter into arrogance and to label people who cannot see the truth as fools. Even if we're doing our best to follow Christ, to start thinking that because we have Jesus, we are so much better than everybody else, that's a deep rooted pride as well. But understanding that God loves us all and coming with Him with humility is what He wants to see. See, before we know it, if we keep this pride thing going, we then cross into enemy territory. And we start congratulating our right, ourselves on being right all along, saying that I was right, I knew it. We probably all know people that do that too, right? You, you, they're right, and they let the world know that they are right every single time. I don't want to be that person. Sometimes I feel like I want to be that person, but ultimately you realize you don't want to be that person. Along with our knowledge, we need to be grace-filled people. The problem with knowing it all is there's a tendency to be judgmental when you think you know it all. Even a, a smarty like, a Paul, like the Apostle Paul, he recognized that knowledge puffs up. He says that in 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge can puff up. Sometimes the most insightful people, the, most peop- the people that know everything, they can seem so uncaring and cold. Kind of like your stories sometimes of doctors who can give the cancer diagnosis but forget that they're talking to a human being that's receiving this news. Sometimes you get someone who knows everything and they forget the people around them actually have feelings. If you're Big Bang Theory fans, the TV show, there's Sheldon, right? He knows everything, and he loves letting everybody know that he loves. He knows everything to the point where, he, and ultimately sometimes he becomes the bad guy in the episode because people don't care that he knows everything. They just want to be a friend, <laughs> but he has to be right. We can cross that line so much so where we forget that we're talking with people, we're dealing with people, and it's not about how much we know. It's about the heart behind relaying what we know, and that's what God is concerned with. Pride has a thousand faces, but it's always the same dreary aim. It's always to make you think more of ourself and less of God. I think grace exposes our desire to sit on the throne in our own way, in our own private kingdom. It's the leaven of the Pharisees. This is what they, they thrived on was their pride. It's the enemy of grace. You can't give grace to people that you look down on. You can't give grace to people you look down on. You can only give them pity. It's not grace. It's pity. Pride is the masquerade, right? You, you walk in wearing this mask. You receive the praise of men knowing all along, you know, nothing. Look, you, know, you look nothing like the costume you're wearing. It's all a facade. It leads to the kind of hypocrisy in which we keenly discern the flaws of others because we can be haunted by our own. It makes us seem bigger. It makes us seem so much better than we can really be when in all reality, it's hiding something. It deflates those around us. Because we detest the lies we tell ourselves, we try to expose lives in other people. We hide the very flaws that God is willing to love instead. You see, pride can't, pride can't hide behind itself. Pride is, is that prayer that says, I thank God that I am not like those other people. I thank God I'm not like you. I thank God I'm not like you. I thank God that I am me. Instead of saying, we have to accept grace. Pride whispers that if we must accept grace, then we should have it all. Pride is the, the miser that hoards the grace of God. Now, pride hoards the grace of God as if our sin were so great that we would consume heaven's full supply of grace, leaving nothing for somebody else. Pride says it's all about me. God's grace is all for me. It's for no one. And the people in Scripture, they dealt with this. That's why they didn't want to share it with the Gentiles. They thought it was just for them. And Jesus came and rocked the boat, literally rocked their worlds when he said, we're going to go to Samaria. We're going to cross the seas. We are going to tell people about the Father who loves them. It's not just for you. This is for everyone. It's a humbling experience. Pride harms deep and grace heals utterly. I think that when we understand these things, it, it really helps us understand why God resists the proud. When we get consumed with pride, we really are saying, I can do this on my own. I really don't need God's help. This is about me. And that's why God resists the proud. We need to be a kind of people who humble ourselves and know that we need more of God in our lives. On the other hand, if we do not humble ourselves, we just may find out that it says God is opposing us. It says God opposes the prideful. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like today, but I know that if I read through Scripture, I see a lot of people that oppose God. It does not end well. I don't know of any verses where someone opposes God and they end up on top at the end of their story. It's always the opposite. Something bad happens. And I know that especially with people who are proclaiming God, when pride gets the best of them, really bad things start to happen. I know that personally, I don't want to be on the opposite end of God. I want to find myself on the end of God's favor, not God's being disappointed in what I'm doing. I want to receive his grace. I know that he is a grace-loving, filled God, and I want that to be what fuels everything I do. Um, I'd like to invite the worship team back up this morning as we come to a close. But also, as we, as we think about this today, I want to invite everybody to do a heart check. Everyone start doing a, an inventory of your heart. A humble heart paves the way for a greater grace, but a prideful heart does the opposite. So as, as we close today, start thinking about which... Which statement describes our hearts? Where, where are we at personally? And a lot of us will be on different areas in life, and that's totally fine. But start thinking of your heart. Why do we serve? Why do we love? Why do we share? Why do we do what we do? Is it to get recognized? Is it to, is it to say, hey, God, look at, look at my lists. Look at all my good deeds. Look at all my things. I don't want to be that Pharisee that comes in and says, hey, God, this is what I did today. This is what I did this week. This is what I did this month. Look at my measuring stick, God. This is amazing. I am awesome. Don't want to be that guy because I know God could turn around and say, well, let's let's talk about all these things. But ultimately, God would say, let's look at your heart with all of these things. Don't want to be that guy. I want to be the guy that comes to God and says, God, I know I'm not worthy, but I do this because I love you. I do this because you've equipped me to do this. I do this because you have such a big plan for me that I can't do by myself, that I rely on you, I trust on you, and I need your grace in my life to get this done. And then with that heart, God gets to say, hey, let me take you here. You may come to me here, but because I know you, I'm bringing you here. And it's going to be amazing what we get to do. Would you stand with me? Do an inventory today. Ask God where your heart is and know that no matter where your heart is, one thing is true. We need more of Jesus. We need more of him to be the reason of why we do what we do. We need more of him to be the one that, that fuels our passion, that fuels our joy. And know that no matter what you're doing in your life, he sees it all the things that people may not say the thank you for, the things people you may not get recognized for, God sees it and he loves you. I need more of him in my life and I know that more of Jesus, it may not make things easier, but it always makes things better. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for your humility. I thank you, Jesus, for the the humble servant and humble king that you are. God, I thank you that through your life, through your story, we get to see that perfect example of how to humbly lead people, how to humbly talk to people, how to humbly love people. God, it's never about us. It's always about you. And I pray that as we, as we leave today, we acknowledge that in our lives, that we need you, we need more of, you, of humility, and we need more of your grace. We thank you, God. We love you. And everybody said, amen. amen.